You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another special episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Sim Tack. Sim is a geopolitical and military analyst at Force Analysis. He's also an old colleague back from our Stratfor days. It was great to get a chance to reconnect with Sim, but also to get his very insightful views on what is going on in the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, we are recording Monday, March 7th at 9.06 a.m. Central Time. Uh, This should come out as soon as we can get it recorded and up, but if anything happens between now and when you listen to this, apologies for being overtaken by events. Um, Otherwise, uh, as always, please rate, review, and send the podcast to anybody you think would be interested in it. Take care, and we'll see you out there. Cheers. Sim, it's nice to be reunited. I wish it was under better circumstances, man. Uh, Hi, Jacob. Thanks for for the sentiment. (laughs) Yeah, that's I'm I'm for a cynical geopolitical strategist. I've always been overly sentimental, but we can psychoanalyze me later. Um, so uh, I let's it's Monday morning here, March seventh um, in the U.S. Um, afternoon European time. This will probably go out if not today, tomorrow. So a lot can change in twenty four to forty eight hours. Um, but just where do you kind of see the Russian invasion uh, from your viewpoint right now here Monday morning? Well, right now we're seeing some interesting developments um, in the battle around the capital, Kiev. Um, So that's one thing, and I'll I'll get back to that. Um, But then separately, we're also seeing the the continued efforts by Russia to expand in the south of Ukraine, which is primarily um, oriented towards the city of Mariupol, which uh, has been catching a lot of headlines, um, a city that is under siege right where the advancing Russian line meets the um, the pre-existing Donbass uh, line of contact. Um, so the city is, is wedged between those two lines, essentially, um, being bombarded uh, pretty much permanently. Um, and then on the other side of the, the southern uh, movement of the Russians, we have their efforts to try and make it to the city of Odessa, which eventually puts them in a position to capture that remaining part of the, the Black Sea coast and, and possibly connect to Transnistria and Moldova. Uh, so those are kind of the big efforts, I think, that Russia's going through. Um, the ones in the south, they are, you know, they are advancing. It, things are going very slowly, and that's something that we've seen across the Russian operations, the, the lack of tempo, the lack of momentum. Um, now, when it comes to that offensive near Kiev, um, that's where the the last several days we've seen the Russian forces kind of retake that momentum. They have been facing some counterattacks by uh, Ukrainian forces, but now in, in the past two days, that seems to have turned around again, and uh, it, it's becoming quite a threatening situation for the capital again. Yeah, I, I was struck by, I feel like at the end of last week, the general media narrative was about how the Ukrainians were counterattacking and they seemed to be slowing the Russians down and the Russians were incompetent. And then suddenly, you know, I was surprised to read some of your maps and things on Twitter this morning. He's at Simtac, folks, if you want to follow him. Um, and it seemed honestly pretty grim, uh, a pretty grim situation for the Ukrainians in general. Are, are you feeling that grimness or do you feel like they're going to be able to counterattack to some of the, the Russian advances that have been made over the weekend? I feel that grimness a little bit. Um, there's always somewhat of an up and down 
uh, from day to day. So, you know, we'll, we'll see days where uh, Russia is not very convincing in its operations and, and things are looking up for Ukraine. But then, um, you know, as, as Russia also takes time to catch up, um, have logistics rejoin the front lines, have uh, fresh forces join the battlefield, that enables them to, to make that other push. And then, you know, obviously things look a little more grim again. But overall, I, I think, you know, it, it's it's really difficult to tell whether this is playing out in Russia's advantage or Ukraine's advantage on the long term. Um, it's, it's a really interesting and really complex battlefield, primarily because of that um, that limited performance that Russia is showcasing. Um, I think a lot of people had expected Russia to kind of um, roll through Ukraine without much opposition, and, and we're definitely seeing that that's not the case. And, and I think such expectations were a little optimistic optimistic as well but um but the reality is you know there are certain situations that could develop horribly for ukraine and it could cause defensive lines to collapse one after the other um allowing russia to settle on the dnieper river for example and and having a a kind of defensive position from which they can negotiate if they want to um, but on the other hand, there's also all of the losses that Russia is facing. Um, just this morning, I was seeing some figures just based only on um, confirmed losses in, in videos and photographs. Uh, Russia's already lost over 800 uh, individual weapon systems, so vehicles and aircraft, um, which is immense. Yeah, I there's so many questions to ask, but I, I guess the first I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, Russia obviously has the advantage in terms of number and firepower and even technology and things like that. Um, how much time do you think they have? I mean, is this the sort of thing where they could draw this out for multiple weeks and still be able to continue on their objectives? Or is this the sort of thing where they have to crush kind of the Ukrainian um, defense in the next couple of weeks or, you know, either from a military perspective or a political perspective that starts to become untenable? So that's, it's very interesting that you asked that question because it's one that I've been debating with a couple of people uh, intensely in the past few days as well. Um, I think what we're expecting here is that Russia can continue this fight because even though it's going poorly, they, um, they still have the ability to push more forces in there. Um, they can keep inching forward, even at a great cost. Um, but eventually, these losses are going to add up, and uh, there won't be enough capacity left in Russia to actually keep the fight going. And when, when I say no capacity left in Russia, I don't mean they would have used up the entire Russian military. Um, but we have to be realistic here and understand that Russia has an interest in maintaining some military capability in other parts of Russia, um, it has defensive objectives around borders of other NATO and allied countries. Um, it has interest in maintaining some defensive positions in the east towards Japan and even China. Um, it has to maintain a capacity to possibly intervene in Central Asia, where, you know, post-Afghanistan, uh, we've seen the recent Kazakhstan uprisings. Um, there, there are plenty of reasons for Russia to maintain a capacity, and the more that they push into Ukraine, um, the more difficult it becomes for them to do that. So, so I think there's 
Um, you know, there's some wiggle room. It's not an exact line that they can or cannot cross. But, um, I mean, my my expectation is that if, if in the coming few weeks, and I, I've been putting it at, at about three weeks until about the end of March, uh, essentially, um, I think if they haven't reached a defensible position or a, a negotiation point, and in my mind that primarily consists of reaching the Dnieper River, um, if they can't do that, I think they have to seriously start considering pulling out of this. Well, and, to, and to, so to push you on that, so do, do you think they'll get there within the next three weeks, or is it just too early to, to call? It, it is possible. So there, there are some significant weaknesses in the Ukrainian defensive setup. Um, so we, uh, you know, we were talking about how Mariupol is sitting on that um, that location where the advancing Russian front lines are joining those existing front lines around the separate regions of Donbass. Um, now, that creates a very difficult situation because as those front lines join, um, Ukraine is forced to abandon some of these fighting positions that it has occupied for over seven years, um, very strong static defensive positions, that it now has to abandon to go and defend from population centers or from hasty defensive positions further inland. Um, so that defensive line starts to move back. Now, when that happens, it frees up the Russian advancing forces as well as those separatist forces they were defending at against at one point. Um, and they are able to mass their capacity against that Ukrainian defensive line possibly pushing it back even further. And you, you get kind of a domino effect and they they have to withdraw from one line to the next until eventually they're on the other side of the Dnieper River. Yeah. How um, you, you kind of alluded to um, how things have gone slowly or, or not so well for the Russians. And obviously some of that is due to, as you said, they, they weren't expecting as much opposition as they got and leaving aside whether that was, I mean, that was obviously not the right call. Um, at a strategic level. Um, but one of the things that has been baffling for me watching this is um, the Russians' inability to achieve air superiority. And that seems to be one of the things that is really preventing them from pushing forward. H how do you explain that? I mean, everything, I I'm not sort of the expert that you are on, on some of these more tactical areas, but how do you explain Russia not going after Ukraine's air defenses? Was I just underrating Ukraine's air defenses? Were we overrating Russia's sort of air capabilities. Um, help me understand what's going on in the air battle. So that that's actually one of the really complicated questions. I, I don't really have a clear-cut answer for you on why the Russians are unable to, to make their air superiority count. Um, the reality is Russia has a much larger air force uh, than Ukraine ever did. Um, Ukraine especially uh, after losing a significant portion of its air force in the fighting in, in 2014-2015. Um, they had been on a trajectory to rebuild their air force, um, but the, uh, the deadline for that, so to speak, was put at 2035. Uh, so we're still a bit early to see that, that modern Ukrainian air force. Um, some of those elements are in play. Uh, one, one of the big things that they had been trying to put in place was the um, essentially building about half of its modern air force out of unmanned platforms. And so they've had that big emphasis on developing their own strike drones and purchasing the, the Turkish-made Bayraktar drones. 
Um, and we're seeing those have a very significant impact on the battlefield. Uh, but those are not air superiority platforms, of course. They're not going to hold back the Russian Air Force. Um, so to come back to that point of why why are we not seeing the Russian Air Force making itself count in this conflict, um, the, the only real reason that I can think of here is um, that they are really not capable of fighting a modern war. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, the Soviet military back in the day, um, they had a very certain way that they would use air power in combination with land power. They would um, essentially organize uh, air power at, at a much higher echelon than their ground operations. So uh, while you had battalions and brigades and, and divisions running around uh, on the battlefield making contact with the enemy, um, those troops in the front line wouldn't be calling directly on air power. Um, instead, you would have separately planned missions at, at division level and above uh, for the Air Force. So a, a complete misalignment of, of the use of resources. Um, in the West, um, since the Second World War, the concept of, of close air support has been developed quite rapidly, and, and you have that direct line through um, joint tactical air controllers on the ground communicating directly with the aircraft. Now, that is something that Russia has tried to develop in the post-Soviet era. Um, let's say over the past 10 years, that's that's been something that supposedly was part of their capabilities. Uh, but I think right now we're seeing that that's not the case. And I'm basing that on the, the way that we see the Russian Air Force um, appear on the battlefield, but also um, based on some of the communications interceptions that have happened um, by people in the in the OSINT community, um, and they have actually been able to catch some conversations between ground forces um, calling for air support, and you know things just go awfully wrong. They they clearly don't have a handle on it. Am I right in saying that this was kind of one of the key, I mean, obviously they overran Georgia in the 2008 Georgia conflict, but I seem to remember at the time that Russia was having many of these same issues, that ground forces were not able to communicate with air forces and the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And even though you know, the Russian invasion looked very impressive, you know, when you sort of looked at what happened in Georgia afterwards, it was um, pretty telling that Russia had all these vulnerabilities. And to your point, you would have thought that they would have fixed some of these things, but it seems like there hasn't been much progress since 2008 based on what you're saying. Is that fair? Uh, exactly. And, and 2008 was one of the reasons that that emphasis on reshaping the, the interaction between ground forces and air forces uh, was actually being pushed in the Russian military. Um, one of the problems that they faced in, in Georgia, which is a little bit different from what we're seeing in Ukraine, is that in, in Georgia, one of their big challenges was finding targets. Um, and that was one of the reasons that the, the GRU, the, the Military Intelligence Service, um, saw its role in, in warfare uh, changed a little bit. Um, they were essentially told afterwards to focus a little more on the intelligence part and a little less on the operational part, um, because during the Georgia war, uh, Russia had the capability to strike, but they didn't have targets at the ready. I think now in Ukraine, we might be seeing the opposite, where there are plenty of targets at the ready, but um, they don't seem to have the capability to actually get the aircraft on that target. Another element that might play into that also is the availability of precision-guided munitions, right? 
Um, so this is something in, in the West we're very used to um, seeing these kind of air campaigns uh, consisting almost entirely of uh, JDAM munitions and, and uh, other types of guided bombs or missiles. Um, most of the ammunitions that we see in Ukraine, the, the ones that don't explode and are recovered, um, they are all dumb ammunitions. They're just gravity bombs without guidance. Um, so that makes it very hard for these aircraft to actually um, hit pinpoint targets in, in tactical situations in, in, in a close air support role. Uh, and it also means that the aircraft have to take more risky maneuvers to effectively deploy these weapons, um, which might be one of the reasons why we've seen so many reports of, of Russian aircraft being shot down. Interesting. Well, um, here, here's sort of a curveball question. What, if anything, are the Russians doing well? Have you been impressed with any of their execution on the ground in sort of any field, or has it just been kind of one mistake after the other? Well, I, I definitely wouldn't say that they, they aren't doing anything well. Um, clearly, they have a broad operational plan that seems to make sense um, in terms of their focus on the capital Kiev, trying to cut Kiev off. Um, they aren't quite there yet, but I, I think that is something that we see coming together as, as we're speaking on the battlefield. Um, separate from that, the the rapid advance through Kherson, uh, so the region just north of, of Crimea, um, that has given them a, a significant foothold that allowed them to, uh, to threaten that Ukrainian defensive position in the south that allows them to threaten a further advance to Odessa. So I, I think there are definitely things that they are doing right here. Um, we might even include the uh, the longer range um, uh, theater missile strike, so the the caliber cruise missiles and the the Iskander missiles that they have been firing very deep into Ukraine at, at air bases to suppress. Um, uh, to suppress Ukraine's ability to, to actually mount its own air force. Um, they've also been targeting a lot of logistical depots and things like that. So I, I think that has had a significant effect on Ukraine's ability to fight back. Um, the question is, is, uh, is doing these few things right going to weigh up against not being able to, to actually maximize the full power of their ground arm? Because that's essentially what it comes down to. It is about getting those troops on the ground where they need to be. Yeah, and that they, they seem to be struggling with. Um, I wanted to go back to something you were saying a little bit earlier. You mentioned Transnistria, and for geopolitical nerds, we all know what Transnistria is. We all probably saw Lukashenko with his map, you know, flapping his, his arms around and publishing crazy things. Um, what is Transnistria and how important of a military objective do you think that would be? I can obviously see the political cachet in going after that, but is there a, is there a military reason for Russia to try and, and take that region? I think there is. And I've, I've actually only recently, when I was having a conversation um, on a, a Twitter space with H.I. Um, Sutton, uh, who's a, a really, a really smart guy when it comes to, uh, uh, all of the naval and, and amphibious capabilities. Um, so he's been talking a lot about that uh, pink arrow that Lukashenko drew on the map there. Um, but I think what, what what we kind of arrived at when having that discussion about Transnistria is that 
this could simply be some kind of a rescue operation. And what I, what I mean by that is Russia has at least 1,500 troops in Transnistria. Um, if they haven't been quietly able to, to rise that number in, in advance of their offensive. Um, but this is a very difficult position to maintain. Transnistria is, so it's a part of uh, Moldova. It's a, a breakaway republic within Moldova. It's a very thin strip of land, not a lot of great defensible terrain. Um, and uh, on the other side, it is completely um, encircled essentially by Ukrainian territory. It doesn't have direct sea access, um, and you can only get there by land through either Moldova or Ukraine. Um, so for Russia, it becomes very difficult to maintain that presence there or to guarantee the safety of its troops there once it starts a conflict with Ukraine, because now any kind of land route is out of the question. Countries like Moldova, Ukraine, they're not going to allow Russian military transport over their territory for at least a while. Um, and the only remaining route that leaves is through the air. Um, and I think right now the airspace over Ukraine, over Transnistria, and, and probably over Moldova as well, is at the very least a little hostile to Russian, uh, Russian transport aircraft. So I wonder whether Russia realized that as they were planning an attack against Ukraine, um, that they were essentially realizing that the guys in Transnistria would get cut off. And in order to prevent that, both in terms of you know not leaving them to get stuck there, but also in terms of being able to employ them at a future date, um, perhaps they have future uh, intent to actually involve them in the conflict in Ukraine or to uh, extend future operations toward Moldova. Um, but in order to do that, they need to set up a sustainable line of communication. And I think at this point, the, the most straightforward way to do that is to connect Transnistria to territories that are under the control of Russia, or if not directly connect them to the sea, and, and that way have their connection to the Black Sea. Sort of embedded in what you're saying then, though, is that I mean, Russia may not mean to occupy all of Ukraine, but it seems like the Russian military is trying to position itself so that, it, so that it can occupy some of these key strategic corridors, which kind of goes against what the Russians have said. Well, I mean, everything that has happened has gone against what the Russians have said. But even in the last day or two, the Russians have said, yes, just recognize Donetsk and Luhansk and let us appoint our own prime minister and everything will be fine. It sounds like what you're saying is that's not um, what their actions on the ground are telegraphing. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily read it that way. So I... I understand what you're saying, and, and Russia is definitely um, putting in place some, uh, you know, some territorial gains that will have long-term benefit to them. Um, another one that we could uh, refer to there is the, uh, the control over the Crimea Canal that Russia has reestablished. Um, so by, by capturing the areas north of Crimea, they've been able to reopen the canal that is pretty much the only source of fresh water, or at least the only real sustainable source of fresh water for the Crimean Peninsula, um, which had been a big problem since their, their occupation of it. Um, so that there are some of those localized advantages, but I think on the whole, um, just because Russia is concerned with the sustainability of its troop presence in Transnistria doesn't necessarily mean that they have a goal to, to permanently occupy Odessa necessarily. 
if they can get away with it, I'm sure they will. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, if, if that is really feasible, especially when we're talking about occupying all of Ukraine. Um, I, I think that's where I have to draw the line. Um, and, and that's simply not feasible with, with all of the, uh, all of the Tsar's horses and all of the Tsar's men, they're not going to, uh, uh, they're not going to take the West of Ukraine and, and control that on the long term. I really don't see that within their capabilities. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine that. Um, Zooming out a little bit um, to kind of big picture questions before I let you go. The first is, um, if you're in Lithuania today or you're in the Baltics or even in Poland, um, should you be afraid right now? Should you be scared of what's going on? Or are the Russians actually showing you that they don't have the capability to do much more than they're doing right now? Um, I, I, had a, I had a friend in one of those countries literally ask me if they should be making plans to get out. And I sort of told them, well, I, I don't think so, because I feel like NATO would probably come to your rescue at that point. Like, it's a different question going after the Baltics, and the Russians don't seem to be able to push beyond that. But I, I wanted to throw that question at you to see if I was right telling my friend that and what, what you would say to that person and what you think about kind of Russia's threat posture whenever this conflict is resolved. So on a conventional level, I think um, we shouldn't really fear... Um, an escalation into into hostilities in, in the Baltics or you know even on the Finnish border or, or anywhere else. Um, I think at this point Russia has already chewed off a little more than it can handle, and its first priority is probably going to be um, not completely destroying itself over this. Um, now, in in terms of fears and and escalation in general. Um, there has been a lot of discussion about potential escalation beyond the conventional um, with uh, Russia's decision to to put its nuclear forces on higher alert, um, which is a clear signal toward NATO essentially saying, um, you know, don't don't get too involved in this. Um, we're we're trying to do our own thing here. And if you push us too hard, we have uh, our nuclear arsenal to strike back. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't really see that escalation to a nuclear conflict as, as that likely. Um, I would hope at the very least that, that there is some, um, some sense of, of scale and proportion left in, in Russian leadership that, um, that makes it clear to them that that would be a really poor choice for everyone, not just for them, but for everyone really. Um, so, you know, I personally, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't really be packing my bags if I was in the Baltics. But on the longer term, and that's where, where I think the greater threat is, if Russia gets away with some kind of a victory in Ukraine, um, I think we really need to start asking ourselves, how are we going to deal with that? Um, because we have seen Russia um, do what it did in, in Crimea and eastern Ukraine in, in 2014, um, clearly, they, they have a problem with accepting um, the UN Charter, the, the rules-based international community. Um, they're unable to play within the acceptable norms, right? Um, they're showing that again now. So what is going to be their next move if they come away with some kind of a victory in Ukraine? And that's why I think, you know, not so much in the sense of you know, should should Poland and the Baltics be fearing something here? I think on the quite the opposite, they should be seeing a potential opportunity here to 
put a halt to Russia's ambitions. Um, if Ukraine can be supported to hold strong against Russia in this conflict, I think we could be in a position where stability in Eastern Europe over the next few decades takes on a very different shape. If Russia loses that perception of being all-powerful, um, or even more, if they lose the actual physical capability, um, if they continue to push equipment into Ukraine this way and, and lose it there, um, I, I think that puts Russia in a very weak position that um, essentially reduces the risks that we've been seeing over the past two decades. Um, on the flip side of that question, if, if you were a Russian um, you know, policymaker or, or, or strategic um, analyst, um, and you sort of already alluded to this, are there other parts of the world that you're afraid of? Are you afraid of maybe somebody in the Caucasus taking advantage or in Central Asia? I know everybody's talking about Russia and China as friends, but um, China also lost territory to Russia back in the late 1800s, for those of you who weren't around for it, which is none of us. Um, do you think that Russia has to be concerned that having overextended itself, that A, it is vulnerable on some of these axes? I think you'll, you'll say yes, but B, that somebody is going to be willing to take advantage of that um, in the short to medium term? I think so. I, I think that actually, I, I think we've seen some actors very actively try to um, push back against Russia's sphere of influence. And that the primary one that we've seen in the past five years or so, uh, seven years, I guess, is, is Turkey. Um, it started with the, the clashing interests in the conflict in Syria, We've seen that expand to the conflict in Libya. Um, but most importantly, and, and you mentioned the Caucasus there, um, if we look back at the Azerbaijan-Armenia war uh, over Nagorno-Karabakh in, in 2020, um, I think we're clearly seeing the signs there that Turkey was one of the main instigators or enablers in this conflict exactly to challenge that Russian influence in the Southern Caucasus. And if Russia shows weakness, if Russia loses that capability, then I think that plays in the advantage of, of Turkey's future efforts to do that. Um, in addition to that, there's, uh, you know, I've mentioned Central Asia, Asia before with the, the Kazakhstan uprisings and, and potentials for insurgency. That might not necessarily be about a competing power challenging Russia, but Russia could be facing some very significant security challenges in that vast area over the next few decades. And, and if they don't have a capability to deal with that, that could spill over into um, maybe not directly into Russia itself, but into some areas that it has very close economic ties with. Um, and then finally, you know, as we're shifting towards the east here, um, finally coming to China, um, the question is, you know, how does China start to behave toward Russia if they don't perceive Russia as a, uh, a significant power anymore, um, if they even do at this point? Um, but one of the interesting things that I, uh, I was made aware of yesterday was that um, apparently China, or at least the, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, has halted its investments in Russia and Belarus over the conflict in Ukraine. Um, so this is, you know, the funding vehicle for the the Belt and Road uh, project. So this is this is something that 
um, or initiative, sorry, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so this is something that China has been working very closely on with countries like Russia um, and, and Russia's allies. Um, so if the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is, is halting down that funding, what does that say about how China is perceiving this conflict? Clearly, um, you know, they're not happy with it. Uh, normally, you'd expect China to be the country that, that essentially accepts all of these things and maybe even applauds it for, you know, challenging the, the Western sphere of influence anywhere in the world. Um, but if we are seeing China diplomatically breaking with Russia, um, I think that a, a weak Russia falls victim to Chinese interests and, and maybe it won't necessarily get invaded uh, but I think it, it doesn't really find support there anymore the way that it has in the past. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more on that point. China, yes, China would like to push back against the sort of Western sphere of influence, but it also does not like when sovereignty of um, you know internationally recognized countries starts getting violated, um, which is maybe kind of a hard thing for people to keep in their minds because they think of Taiwan. But one of the reasons that China has been so insistent that Taiwan is not an independently recognized country and that it has been getting everybody else not to recognize it is because it doesn't want to be in this kind of situation. I think that Russia's in with Ukraine. Um, second kind of big picture thing to zoom out. Um, it seems like a race for all these European governments to announce how much money they're throwing into their military budgets and how fast they're going to hit 2% of um, GDP spending on military budgets. Um, I, I think it's what 100 billion euros from the Germans here in the next year or two. I saw even the Danes are throwing their hats in and talking about you know, vastly increasing military spending and and even withdrawing some of their um, their current posture towards European defense protocols. So um, I wanted to ask you, and you're obviously also European. Does any of this mean anything to you? Are, are these real initiatives that will actually increase? Um, European military power over a short to medium term? Is this sort of more political signaling to demonstrate that people are against Russia? How, how seriously do you take this, these, all these announcements about how Europe is going to beef up its military? Um, I, I think there are some serious um, realistic consequences that will come out of this. Um, but I think that we need to be a little nuanced in what to expect there. When, when people talk about European defense, um, when they push that to the extent of a European army um, operating under European leadership, um, I think we're going a few bridges too far there. Um, Europe is barely able to actually uh, bring together a, a foreign policy, let alone um, actually take military command. Um, but that said, any of these investments in European defense do pay off. What they are actually investing in is, is not necessarily a single European army, but a uh, a shared uh, a burden sharing scheme. Essentially, that's what it is. They are they are jointly um, procuring weapon systems. They are jointly developing those. They are generating interoperability between European armies, and those are things that pay off when you end up conducting joint military operations. And uh, we've seen that in a lot of the operations that uh, European countries have conducted um, under EU flag or uh, under ad hoc alliances or under NATO. Um, so all of these all of these investments, I, I think that's not a wasted effort or, or a pipe dream. 
Um, but it just it, it's a little limited of of the the more extreme views that um, you know I, I think some people see President Macron as as one of the proponents of of, of actually creating a standing European army. Yeah, he certainly is, and he's uh, he has a lot of faults, but I think from a strategic level, he's been right about a lot of things. Um, I also just wanted to ask from sort of an anecdotal um, basis. I mean, some of the people I'm talking to, especially in Germany, feel really betrayed by Russia on a deep visceral level. And if you look at the polls in a lot of European countries, um, it seems like broadly Europeans are supportive of harsher restrictions on Russia, even if it means higher energy prices. Do you feel like there has been um, a shift in sort of how normal Europeans think about Russia in general and that um, Europeans really are willing to stomach much higher natural gas prices and much higher oil prices in the next two to three years if it means sort of rapidly decreasing dependence on Russia? Or do you think that will fade as sort of the realities of this conflict on the ground start to assert themselves? So I, I think that there is definitely some of that going on. There are people that are... Um, that are taking on a much more critical stance toward Russia that are um, willing to stomach some of these uh, energy prices. Um, luckily for them as well, we're, we're nearing the end of winter here in Europe. So um, the, the natural gas demand will start to drop and, you know, it probably won't bring prices down to what they were before the winter, but um, the, the pain probably won't be the worst that it could have been. Um, but one of the important things to, to realize here, and I, I think this is probably the case as much in the U.S. as it is in, in Europe, um, but as with every political topic, um, it's not just about people, you know, taking a stance. It's, it's about people taking opposite stances. And that, that polarization of society is something that I am definitely uh, noticing in, in this conflict as well. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing very clearly some people... Um, drawing toward pro-Russian or um, Russia apologetic narratives, uh, by which I don't mean to say you know that there's no room to uh, to to talk about Russia in anything other than a negative manner. But um, some people are are taking liberties with that, obviously, and uh, especially when we see the way that people are sharing certain narratives from social media. Um, there's propaganda going on on both sides of the conflict, um, and, it, and it becomes very clear once that hits the European social media crowd which which side of other political divides they are on based on which propaganda on the Ukraine conflict they start to spread. Um, Sim, this has been great. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you're going to be watching very closely going forward that we didn't talk about already? Um. No, I think we've we've actually kind of covered everything. Um, if you uh, if you allow me, I'd, I'd like to uh, you know you mentioned my my Twitter um, at SimTac. We're going to continue to follow the conflict there. Me together with some of the other people I work with, being um, Kupsu and Detresva. Um, if you're not following those people, they're doing some really great work on on OSINT and and IMINT. Um, and yeah, we're going we're gonna to keep trying to figure out how things are evolving on the ground and how exactly the Russian military, um, how, how the Russian military has ended up screwing itself over here. 
Well, I, I highly recommend Sim and everybody uh, to everybody who's listening. Um, Sim, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, maybe we'll have you back on here in a couple weeks to talk about what, what has happened over that time period. But in the meantime, thanks again. Cheers. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.